maybe that's impossible. Hey, girl. You look just like your mother. Has not been unleashed. We made a terrible mistake. The doomsday clock might be about out of time. If our world's gonna survive, what matters is what we do now. I can use your expertise. You coming or what? A baby raptor? I made a promise we would bring her home. You made a promise to a dinosaur? Yeah. What? Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and it is, as always, a dino delight to be joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And it is quite rawsome to be here. <laughs> use rawsome a lot, mate. I'm sorry. You can't you can't just use rawsome for dinosaurs. Come on. That's you know, that's really I knew you'd pick me up on that. It it was lazy. I was hoping I'd get it past you, but um <laughs> nothing gets past you, Mr. Wallace. Yes, well before you uh, before you wreck the podcast, um we'll um that wasn't I mean that wasn't better, but you know, at least it was new. It was new and terrible. I'd have had it. That was a good one. <laughs> that was Triceratops. Hey! Back on form. <laughs> yeah, so today we're going to be discussing the latest in the Jurassic World. What's, what's six again? The, the Jurassic World trilogy as part of the wider Jurassic franchise. I think it's a franchise. I think we. this isn't a saga. I think we just call this one a franchise. Yes, it's certainly that. Would you do the honours of reading the IMDb synopsis? Will indeed. So the IMDb page is missing punctuation. So according to the IMDb, this film is called Jurassic World Dominion. <laughs> and it's like, shouldn't there be a colon after Jurassic World or dash? But we typically do this with a colon, right? Jurassic World Dominion. Dominion. But no, according to this one, Jurassic World Dominion. Jurassic World Dominion. Get it out there, quickly. So the plot of Jurassic World Dominion Four years after the destruction of Isla Nubla, dinosaurs now live and hunt alongside humans all over the world. This fragile balance will reshape the future and determine, once and for all, whether human beings are to remain the apex predators on a planet they now share with history's most fearsome creatures in a new era. I mean, that makes it sound far more epic and apocalyptic than the film actually is. Yeah, indeed. So this one, of course, is the sequel to Jurassic World colon, Fallen Kingdom. And at the end of that Sorry, one... colon fallen? Colon you fallen, probably, yes. You should probably go to the doctor about that. I am waiting for Jurassic World prolapse. <laughs> Wasn't the best of the series, but there were parts that were really the most memorable. Yeah, so anyway. So at the end of uh, Jurassic World colon, Fallen Kingdom... The dinosaurs were loose, and they had spread around the world, and... It seemed to be the kind of thing that every single film in this franchise, including the original Jurassic Park trilogy, was building up to. The fact that we now have to live alongside dinosaurs. 
So it's a really good ending to, I thought, a really interesting film. Not always successful, but in this weird kind of gothic fairy tale structure that had given himself um, J.A. Biona, the director, was just trying to do something a bit different, I thought. But with this film, we have Colin Trevorrow returning as the director and also the co-writer. He did Jurassic World back in 2015, I think it was. So he's been brought on to finish the franchise. And we'll get into it, but this one, yeah, the idea of humans and dinosaurs living alongside each other is just one of many, many different plot threads in a film that, well, you said, because you saw this before I saw it, you said, well, it's two and a half hours, but it's not dull. I never thought it was dull. And yeah, there's way too much going on in this film for it to be dull, but... It's a bit flat. Yeah, this film is a Colin Trevorrow film. It is the same as Jurassic World, the 2015 version. Yeah, it's like, there are the dinosaurs, and here's the excitement, and it's all served up in a middle-of-the-road way. It's a mid-range blockbuster with mid-range ambitions and mid-range excitement. Yes, I mean, the actual plot to bring some of the characters into it... Well, would you like to do the honours with that one? Well, yes. Um, returning from the earlier world films, we've got Chris Pratt as Owen Grady, kind of raptor trainer, who's in a relationship with Claire Deering, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, who who managed um, the original Jurassic World Park. They've settled into like a life of domesticity in the, the mountains, I think, in Sierra Nevada. And we won't go any further into that because that probably constitutes a spoiler. Um, but there well, is every some... single review has said what it is. Shall we just... Yeah, because I think it does follow on from Fallen Kingdom. Yeah, go on. Yep, they are there with Maisie Lockwood, the young girl from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, played by Isabella Sermon, who is a clone of the daughter of one of the founders of Jurassic World, and essentially she, her DNA had, had some proprietary value, so lots of people are looking for her. But as this is going on, there's also a crisis brewing involving a prehistoric strain of locusts that are devouring all the crops. And this has um, Dr. Ellie Sattler, Laura Dern returning, you know, very concerned. And she brings in Dr. Alan Grant, Sam Neill, and together they must figure out what's going on. And yeah, believe it or not, they also managed to find a way to get Jeff Goldblum back into proceedings. So it's uniting the original trio from the, uh, the original Jurassic World trilogy. Although, you know, that said, they don't really share any space outside the first film. With the new, I guess you'd call them the new duo, trio, if you count Maisie as, part of being, as being part of that trio. And yeah, uh, inevitably, eventually, these plot threads converge. So I just picked you up on one thing that Alan Grant and Ian Malcolm, who's played by Jeff Goldblum, and Eddie Sattler are from the Jurassic Park trilogy, not from the Jurassic World trilogy, but as you said, they're only really in the first film together. Just so people aren't saying, they weren't in Jurassic World, they're in Jurassic Park. Hmm. Which actually is one of those things where it's like, yeah, we have come a long way from Jurassic Park in terms of the sensations that we felt in that film. Yes, yeah, not, and not, and not particularly far in terms of the narrative. No, although that's more, all... although more lost, although it's more lost world, I'd say then. Well, actually, yeah, we'll get into that because this is many, many different things. But when I was watching this film, I thought it says everything that even though I've not seen Jurassic Park for, ooh, when was the last time I watched it? Maybe six, seven years ago when it was on at Christmas. I thought I just remember not only the characters' first names, but also their surnames. 
But with the new films, I just could not hold on to what the Chris Pratt and the Bryce Dallas Howard character were called. Even this morning, when I was looking up to see the cast and just to make a quick note of all the main cast members. So, what was, why is his name again? What is Chris Pratt's name again in this? Is it? No, oh Oh, yes, it's Owen. Owen Grady, that's right. And Bryce Dallas Howard, no. Oh, yes, it's Claire. Claire Deering. Just says everything about the Jurassic World films. The characters are so unmemorable. And it has to be said that Chris Pratt, I mean, he's perfectly watchable. But what a fall from the charm and charisma. Do you remember when he was being touted as the next Indiana Jones? Yeah, I mean, that happened pretty quickly off the back of Guardians of the Galaxy. And also the original Jurassic World. It was like... He just had that one-two hit really quickly of Guardians and Jurassic World. And it was like, oh my God, we've got a new movie star. He's just this schlubby guy from Parts and Recreations, but he got himself in shape. And, ooh, he's got it all, he's got it all. He's got the looks, he's got the physique, he's got the charisma, he's just, he can do the action stuff. And then it suddenly turned out that, oh no, he's actually, (laughs) once you expose his charisma to oxygen, it just begins to dissipate really, really quickly. I think passengers may have... Yeah, but Jennifer Lawrence came out that okay. That's the thing, I thought he was watchable in that, but the film itself was terrible. But yeah, anyway, so it has to be said, this one, I was all ready to just not like this film very much because the reviews have been toxic, like really, really damning. And you wouldn't say anything when we talked, but you said that you'd seen it, but kind of said, well, it's not dull for two and a half hours. And I thought, oh, okay, right, so this is going to be, it's just been nice. But actually, I have to admit, you're right, this was two and a half hours, It wasn't dull. I actually enjoyed this one. This was good enough. It was big, dumb, monster fun. And I thought, you know what? I'll never watch it again. But this is all right. I'm surprised. Yeah, because I think the reason reason that Colin Trevorrow didn't do the second film, Fallen Kingdom, is that he was busy with Star Wars, right? Yes, because of course he was originally supposed to provide the concluding part of the new Star Wars trilogy, Rise of Skywalker but was booted off that film. There's actually a Wikipedia article on the film that didn't get made called Star Wars Duel of the Fates because the script leaked online. And by what I've read, it's better than Rise of Skywalker, which, you know, best blown the world to Colin Trevorrow. It's rare that you read something by him or see something by him and think, well, that's that, or or don't see something by him and think, well, that's better than the alternative. Yeah. (laughs) That's the thing, isn't it? Because this film is like very safe. This is a film that doesn't try to do anything particularly out of the ordinary. Whereas Fallen Kingdom did. Fallen Kingdom said, okay, we're going to be a weird, gothic, ghost story fairy tale with dinosaurs. And it's like, okay, that's mad, but I'm on board with that. And it actually produced an interesting blockbuster. This one, well, this one is the born Triceratops for quite a lot of the film. It's like, (laughs) I'm really surprised I'm watching a born movie. And there's all this espionage going on and there's all these characters coming in who have sold their special set of skills to the highest bidder and there's all these machinations around who's going to get the DNA IP and and take it to the person who's spending all this money and it's like, and it's global as well, it's like, okay, right, so we're going around all these different countries and it's all about espionage and the dinosaurs are kind of just another thing that people have to deal with, (laughs) Which actually, I actually quite like it to some degree. It's a bit... Yeah, it did. I thought that was... I, thought, well, I wasn't expecting a Bourne film in my Jurassic Park film or, or in my Jurassic World film, but... I think it's revealing that between this and Fallen Kingdom, because Fallen Kingdom, to some degree, is the same 
in that the first half of it's a disaster movie, the second half of it's like a haunted house movie, and the dinosaurs are just kind of there to keep things interesting. And you're right, because this one inverts that. The first half of this is an espionage movie. The second half of this is a disaster movie. So it kind of says, okay, right, so we're going to do disaster film plus another genre. Well, that's a formula, and it produces watchable results. But I just think... See, you were too young to see Jurassic Park when it first came out, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. The sensation of seeing that film in 93 was literally awe-inspiring because you were watching dinosaurs and these dinosaurs didn't look like dinosaurs from previous films. These looked like they had found a park that had dinosaurs on them. And the sense of awe in the audience was absolutely palpable. And the attack on the Jeep by the T-Rex is just one of those great scenes of cinema. And everyone was just literally on the edge of their seats. And at the end of that sequence, the audience just burst out laughing because in 93, we weren't clapping in this country in films, but we were laughing when we really enjoyed something. And then when Spielberg, because of course the T-Rex was only supposed to really be in it, I think in the script, it was only in it for the Jeep attack. And Spielberg said, hmm. Well, no, the, the, yeah, exactly. I think the audience are going to want to see the T-Rex again, right? So you get like a little bit of it when they, what are they called? When you see the Galilima, that... Yeah. flocking herd of dinosaurs. And then, of course, he brings it back at the end as a deus ex machina for the velociraptor attacks when they're all being threatened by the velociraptors. And it's absolutely brilliant because it's out of the blue, but also it's like, oh, it's the thing that we like the most about this film, the T-Rex. And that's Spielberg's storytelling genius. It's like it's it's like a simple touch, but yeah, you've got to bring the T-Rex back at the end. And everyone walks out going, I'm going to tell everyone to see that film and I can't wait to see it again. This one, I thought, was much more like the films that came before it, like The Land That Time Forgot, The Journey to the Centre of the Earth, One Million Years BC, and When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth. It was like, it's a monster film. There's no sense of these creatures actually ever really having existed before they were created in the lab. You don't really believe that they're kind of dinosaurs. It's like, oh, they're just something that's been created. And that's, which is, yeah, you're right. There is, there is that disconnect. There, and I think there are some nice moments that Trevorrow sets up in terms of seeing how the dinosaurs have integrated or not integrated into the modern world. You've got that Maisie going past, I think it's like a, a quarry or like a, or like a working factory. Yes. And there's the Diplodocus going through and they kind of need to lead it off with a flare. And that's nice. And like, I think moments like that are quite nice. But the problem is they're not woven organically into the story. It's like, let's just slow everything down for a moment of wonder. That's not part of the core plot. It's not like them stopping at the Jeep at the beginning of Jurassic Park to reveal the Diplodocus. Mm. It's like a no, we're actually going to have this. And there's an elegiac tone to parts of you know the new film that I quite like. But the problem is, you know, one of the problems is it is 146 minutes long. So just on the point that you made, that's exactly it. It's like there are nice elegiac moments. They tend to come at the beginning. And you're kind of wanting a film that continues in that mood where... You're watching characters whose lives do just suddenly stop and they have to stop what they're doing. But the reason that they have to stop what they're doing is because there's like a 50 ton dinosaur going by or something. Hmm. And that was a great scene, I thought, in that quarry when the Diplodocus goes by and it's like, it's not being threatening, it's just in the way. So they have to get it to move. And I kind of knew before I'd seen the film that this wasn't going to be the movie, that the movie was actually going to become much more narrow in its focus. And I thought, oh, this is a better film that I'm seeing here. One thing it made me think of, although I don't think the Jurassic World franchise comes out particularly well from this comparison, are um, Matt Reeves' Planet of the Apes. 
in terms of we're going to depict a world impacted by this event and how do people adapt? Although Matt Reeves, I can wax lyrical about um, War of the Planet of the Apes, Matt Reeves is just a more interesting filmmaker. I mean, a lot of people, you know, a lot of reviews described this Jurassic World Dominion as being pulp. And it's like, it's not really War of the Planet of the Apes, which goes from like Vietnam film to biblical allegory. Like that's pulp. That's mad, glorious pulp. This is just a well-executed blockbuster. Yeah, that's really interesting because the word pulp now having a certain cachet that you have to earn pulp, of course, goes against the very notion of pulp the idea that this is consumed and then pulped i would say that this is pulp in that sense of like this is literally just produced to be consumed and then it just gets pulped i will never watch this film again i might catch bits of it on telly but i'm never going to sit down and watch this film again but it's really interesting the way that you're we now look at pulp as something as a b movie it sticks by the genre expectations but then does things really interesting within them this isn't that but this i think is pulp the same way that one million years BC was pulp, or Journey to the Centre of the Earth was pulp. It's like, yep, you want a monster movie? That's fine, because we've got one, and here you are, and it's going to chase some people around, and it's going to eat them, and there's going to be some excitement. And also, like, I don't think any of those films were particularly long, because, of course, it was expensive to do the effects, so therefore, and it also took a long time to do the stop-motion effects, so therefore they couldn't have these big, huge films. But like a disaster film, this is long. And I actually didn't think that the length was a problem with this, but did you think that it dragged? No, I I didn't think it dragged. But essentially, for better or for worse, the film is a sequence of set pieces involving different dinosaurs. And the plot essentially functions in such a way as to get the characters to the end point via these set pieces. So, you know, when they're on a plane, you're like, okay, there's something going to happen involving a flying dinosaur. They're in a forest. What lives in the forest? They're on an ice lake. What could potentially be under the water in the ice lake? And, and you know, in all fairness, that's, you know, a perfectly solid blockbuster formula. Well, to your point, that shows how little we've come from the original Jurassic Park, because that's kind of the same thing there. Each scene really focuses on a different dinosaur. But I guess with the original Jurassic Park, you had the novelty at least. But more than that, I think in the original Jurassic Park, it wasn't always a threat. It was like... Yeah also about wonder and about interacting with these things. So there's that bit when Alan Grant's got the kids after the whole thing with the T-Rex, but then they, they Diplodocus or something like that. I don't think they are, but anyway, but but they're like that sort of dinosaur and they're in the tree. Brachiosaurus? Brachiosaurus. And they're just watching them. And then I think they feed them at one point or something like that. This is a set piece spectacle as well, but it's not played for threat and excitement. It's just played for wonder. Um, And I think that's how we've slightly devolved in terms of blockbuster filmmaking. There was no wonder in this film. I think the film tries for wonder. I just don't think it gets there. No, that's right, yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily entirely its fault. Again, what is it going to show us that we haven't already seen? And on one hand, like, I think the idea of a world where people and dinosaurs coexist is an interesting one like sociologically an interesting one i don't think it's dramatically that interesting i don't know i think i think it can be interesting because it's like with the whole thing about corporations are going to leap on this even if they're a threat corporations are going to leap on dinosaurs how would they do that that's surface level explored in this and do you remember the name of the company in this film the big company biosyn yes biosyn i mean 
<laughs> talk about not being subtle, guys. If you have sin in the name of your company, okay, that's fine, whatever. Come now, it is spelled B-O-Y-S-Y-N, as in synthetic. That's right, yeah, you see. Well, and it's the, it's the um, InGen's competitor throughout the series, isn't it? Because Dodgson, um, Lewis Dodgson, who here is like the... Um, CEO mm. was it was the person who collected these uh, well was going to collect the samples from Nedry Dennis Nedry in the original Jurassic Park that's right yeah though they've replaced the a- actor from that film with Campbell Scott who's very good in the role yeah indeed it's like yeah yeah he just plays a Steve Jobs type um Elon Musk type it's like he's this um he's a genius because he's a genius and he's a billionaire he is just weird it's like it's funny how real life billionaire geniuses just arrived kind of fully formed as a movie character because he's very similar to the Mark Rylance character from Don't Look Up that kind of, Mm. I think on a different level, therefore I am brusque and rude, but also like a child. And it's like, yeah, this is, yeah, I just just immediately recognise you now as a billionaire genius. Okay, fine. But I think in terms of wonder, it's like cinema can still achieve wonder and dinosaurs can still achieve wonder. I just think that it needs to be in the hands of a director who is confident or feels the need to do that, or from a studio that wants to do that. Because that moment with the Diplodocus, when they have to get it to move, well, there are moments of wonder there, because it's like, this is great. This is construction workers having to stop their day because a dinosaur has walked across their workplace. Hmm. There is more potential there to go into that. But it's just, that's not the remit that they have set themselves. They've set themselves a chase movie involving espionage and mercenaries and spies and, and the highest bidder and blah, blah, blah. Which again was part, yeah, was part of the second film as well. Though I think this one, I quite liked how the kind of underground trade was less billionaires bidding for genetic rights and more just scumbags wanting, uh, wanting to, you know, serve up dinosaur meat. Yeah, or like exotic pets. It's like, yes, you go to these underground bazaars in countries with very, very lax regulation and you can buy a dinosaur or you can eat a dinosaur. And that kind of, again, again, that kind of stuff is like just little flashes here and there of like the bigger world, but we are really, really focused on the chase movie. And when you say the second film, you mean Fallen Kingdom. Yes. You haven't said it's big, dumb, monster fun, just to put a line under the dumb, because this film is stupid in so many ways i mean if you're a trained government agent with a gun wouldn't you at least try to shoot the dinosaur that's chasing you like there's a scene where three people are armed and trained and they have to escape dinosaurs and not one of them discharges their weapon it's like hmm is this because it's a 12 and we're not allowed to see guns firing well that's not true why are you not trying to shoot that dinosaur before you start running and also you're, you're waiting around to just waiting around to see which of the dinosaurs is going to eat the bad guy yeah, indeed, that's yeah, right. Actually, I which, that was quite which, which, which one's going to get him? That's right. There's a big bad guy in this film who gets eaten by a dinosaur that does actually go back to, which is a callback. Yeah, to the very, very beginning of the entire franchise. And so, like, oh, that's quite good. But actually, the one thing that I was surprised by was that the original cast from Jurassic Park weren't just brought on for three days of shooting to show their faces so you can put them onto the poster. They actually did have something to do in this film. And I was pleased at how much they were in it. Yeah, they had their own narrative, which was good. And there's one moment with Ellie that tries to replicate something from the original Jurassic Park, and it did it in a really clumsy way, I thought. It's like, well, that's not the right angle. It's not the right look on her face. It looked like they were just doing a rehearsal take to make sure that all the blocking was right. But then it's like, well, it's, it's not quite right, so we need to move it over. But anyway, but they flubbed that bit. But there were some nice callbacks to the original one. I did like the fact that Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm does his shirt up at one point. That made me laugh. 
Well, and there's one point where he just where he's just looking at Dodgson and he just says Dodgson and just basically delivers it completely. Just it's a very weird line delivery while simultaneously being very straight, and it's such a like an odd moment. Well, that's the genius of Jeff Goldblum, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, it's like. like... He doesn't do a Nick Cage and give a line reading so over the top that you just laugh and just watch this actor act. He does give a performance as a character, but it is in that Jeff Goldblum register where it's like, it's very tempting to just try and do an impersonation of you because you're so much fun to watch and also to listen to in terms of how you deliver lines. He does get a lot to do in this film, but he, I wouldn't go so far as to say he's MVP, but he, he does, uh, there's a bit involving a locked gate. Yes. Which is very funny. Yeah, it is. That's right. I would say that the MVP in this film, there's actually three of them. It's uh, Laura Dern, Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum. They are... Yeah, that's... If you take out one of them, the film is not as successful or as enjoyable. They all have to be in it. And the thing is, they do bring quite a bit of that magic from the first film just by being on screen and also not phoning it in. They're all giving proper big performances and you do believe these are the characters... 30 years later, oh, oh, that's just scary to think that uh, Jurassic Park is 29 years old. But anyway. They're all looking pretty great on it. Yeah, indeed, they all look great, yeah. I know it's hardly breaking news. Hollywood star is ageing very, very well. But yeah, they all look great. And Sam Neill, as Alan Grant, gets to do some Indiana Jones stuff for a scene. And it's like, hey, we're going to bring Indiana Jones in. That's absolutely fine. We, we can do that <laughs> because there was a touch of that in the original Jurassic Park. But yeah, we can double down on that. I'm along for that ride as well. And there were some good lines in terms of there's a dinosaur in this. The Chris Pratt's character, Owen, has mutual respect for and he has to go and do a mission for this dinosaur as well. And um, there's one point where Ian Malcolm says, oh, look at that, you gave it a name. (laughs) Hmm. And that made me laugh. The fact that, yes, people have now started naming dinosaurs like their pets or like their people. There was just enough in it that I was never take. I was never bored, and I was never less than entertained. I have to admit. Yeah, I just don't understand why the reviews are quite so toxic. I mean, I don't think we need another Jurassic World film, but I don't think this was a disaster. Yeah, I think people are just maybe a bit bored by it. Just in terms of like, okay, it's another one. It's perfectly adequate. Yeah, but the reviews are not that though. The reviews are saying this is a disaster. Like Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian gave this one star. And his review is like, this is a disaster. And lots of them are saying, it's a disaster. And it's like, it's not. It's just an adequate middle-of-the-road blockbuster that actually I thought was a bit better than a lot of other blockbusters. And to just compare it to the film of the moment, Top Gun Maverick, which I just, I mean, I just, again, I just do not get the ongoing adoration for that movie. There were bits in Top Gun Maverick where I was bored. Wasn't bored in this one. Um, I was never bored during Top Gun Maverick. I really like Top Gun Maverick. I didn't dislike this one. I think it's too well made to be... I'm trying to think of, of any other points I had around it. Well, while you're thinking about that, I'm just going to give a shout I out like... to some of the other cast members. But actually, I'll do that after because it sounds like you've got a point. I like how it was, for the most part, less mean-spirited, apart from what happened to poor Scooter Guy. Yeah, that was fine. Anyone on a scooter, it's like, that's fine. Yes, it wasn't a mean-spirited film, this one. This was, uh, it actually did. There's one thing it could have very easily done, being a sequel to a long-running franchise, and it didn't do that, and I thought, that's good. Um, in terms of the cast, DeWanda Wise, yep, she's good. She was in The Harder They Fall. She tags along as someone who helps the team. That's good. 
Mamadou Athi is he was in Underwater, which is have you seen Underwater, the Kristen Stewart film? Oh, uh, yes, I have. Yeah, so he was in that as well. He plays a guy who works for Biasin, who is being tipped to be the next big genius there. Although you don't really get any of that from his introduction. No, He well, just seems to be like a guy who works there, and then it turns out he's got a really close relationship with Dodgson, and it's more at the start, you're like, are you like Dodgson's assistant? Yeah, that's right. Although I think towards the beginning, Dodgson does say he's brilliant, he's cleverer than I am. But it, again, it's just one of those things where you're just told it. It's not actually really dramatised. But he was good. I mean, I thought... Yeah, I think that anyone who liked this film should stampede to Underwater, which is on one of the streaming services right now. I think it could be Disney+, Plus, which I was shown by a friend of the podcast, Adrian Zach, for the first time relatively recently. And that's just a great action monster movie, that is. Love that film. And it's about 85 minutes. Talking about another member of the cast, I went. I was in Paris when I saw this. Yeah. And I saw it at a, a nice, um, a really nice Parisian cinema called uh, Le Grand Rex, which is appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> which was not intentional, but was how it turned out. And Omar Sy got a cheer when he appeared on screen. Yeah, he's cool. So he plays one of the, well, he's like a government agent now or something, isn't he? Is he? Yeah. And he was, in, I mean, he was in the first Jurassic World film, I think, wasn't he? Well, you said that. Yeah. I just, I just remember so little about the first Jurassic World film that all I actually do remember about that film, really, that's the one with the balls, isn't it? When they're in the balls and then they're all just running out of control down the hill. Yes. Remember that bit. And also, but the bit where the woman gets eaten by the pterodactyl or gets like, yeah, picked up by the, the pterodactyl. And, and then chomped by the, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I remember that just being really nasty and thinking, well, that was quite intense for a 12 certificate. But that's really the only two things I remember from that film. So I don't actually remember Omar Sy being in it, which I think is is a failing of that film. And then we've got B.D. Wong back. Yeah. And has B.D. Wong been in more Jurassic films than any other actor? So he's in the first one. And... Was he in Lost World as well? I feel like he was. I feel like he he wasn't. He was in Jurassic World. He was in Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, and he was in this one. Maybe he was just in Jurassic Park. I'm, I'm looking. I, it's, he, he wasn't in Lost World. He was in Jurassic Park. So he's been in four. Okay, right. Well, then he might be. Then yeah. Why did it take him till now to learn a lesson? <laughs> well, it's... It take, it's taken him so long. Bring back dinosaurs once and it fucks up. Okay, maybe you just fucked up. You bring back dinosaurs twice and you fuck up you maybe start to think that bringing back dinosaurs is a bad idea. Like, you may be at that point like, oh no, maybe it's the whole fucking hypothesis that's bad. Like, maybe it wasn't, you know, it's not lab conditions. It's the don't bring back dinosaurs. And they'll finally in this film, he's like, well, I have some regrets. It's like, no shit. No shit, Henry. That's right. Well, that's the, <laughs> that's the, to be charitable to the franchise, there's an element of like, when you've got, a genius who has achieved something spectacular, they will try and make it work. So, okay, I just need to change that and then it'll be right. I just need to change that, then it'll be right. And so I think it's one of those things where it would be like, I'm not ready to let this go yet because I know I can get this right. Because we've, we've... Are, you, are you saying that this franchise has been commenting preemptively on the hubris of billionaire geniuses? I think it understands that. Particularly, well, actually, <laughs> the... Um, the book Jurassic Park, the Michael Crichton book, which is... Yeah, because Hammond is far more unlikable in that, isn't he? Yeah, he is He is motivated by ambition and greed, but also his own intelligence. So I'd say that the original Jurassic Park book does do that. I mean, I think there's a really good arguments to be made for that, that this is a franchise that talks about the hubris of billionaires um, and genius. 
But it's funny that the film kind of, the film franchise almost has to be about that in order to justify its own existence. Because otherwise, like, it's like, how do these films keep getting made? Well, certain incidents need to occur in-universe. How do these incidents occur in-universe? Fucking megalomaniacal billionaires. So we want to make more money. So in order to do that, we need to set up another plot about a very, very rich person doing very, very short-sighted things. But to be honest, I mean, and to your point, to go back to how little we've come in terms of storytelling from the first movie, the first film does that all absolutely perfectly and actually even has a line that could be a mantra for the entire franchise, both within world and as a meta comment, just because you could do this, it doesn't mean to say you should. There's a line in Jurassic World, I think, that Claire has where she says something along the lines of people don't care about dinosaurs anymore. Or like, you know, it's not just enough to show people... And I think that's why, I mean, admittedly, the first Jurassic World film made a billion dollars, so what do I know? <laughs> but equally, no, I don't think anybody loved the first Jurassic World film. It was more like we're getting more big, silly dinosaur movie. And it's been a while since we've had one, because it, it was about 15, 14, 15 years since there'd been a Jurassic Park film. By the way, I've just Googled, because I wanted to check something, what the lifespan is of a T-Rex. Go on. And it says about 28 years. So that's a very old T-Rex at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you're thinking it's the first one, yeah, oh, actually, oh, that's quite a nice touch then. That's clearly because um, <laughs> Warner Brothers have just, no, not Warner, Universal have just gone in and updated that. So the Google search yeah, is so here. That's right. That's exactly it. 28 years. 28 years. Is it another marketing figure? One other cast member that I was very happy to see is Daichen Lackman, who is from Severance. Anyone who's seen Severance recently, she's the psychiatrist, psychologist character in Severance. She is in this for, again, a bit during the espionage sequence and it's like, oh, yeah, she's good. This is the first film ever that's made me literally think the words, somebody take the fucking laser pointer off her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Isn't anybody going to stop her? Like, put it down. Put it down. <laughs> Sorry. Again, that's a really good example of the stupidity in this film of like, there's a very easy way to make this incredibly threatening situation immediately less threatening. Why aren't you doing it? Because you have all the tools to do it. <laughs> yeah, there was, yeah, so it was like, okay, but we're not going to do that. Okay, well, actually, fine, fine. I'm, for some reason, I'm just not as annoyed with that as I would be maybe in another film. But I think because, actually, I think because this just seemed like one of those monster movies from the 50s and 60s that I used to watch on a Saturday afternoon, like journey to the center of the earth it's like okay this is not clever it is dumb but it's fun dumb so yes <laughs> there's a very good meta line that ian malcolm has about jurassic world which was all here but that was i thought was funny as well when he says that so yes, yes. <laughs> i mean yes i think in summary we didn't dislike it it's just fine Yep. If you're not in the mood for a dumb dinosaur movie, then don't see this film. If you are in the mood for a dumb dinosaur movie, that the biggest surprise of which is that it's two and a half hours long and doesn't drag, then yeah, go and see it. I would recommend it. Although, if you're not in the mood for a dumb dinosaur movie, why are you watching a latter-day Jurassic film? <laughs> but, uh, you see, because I just had no interest in this movie, other than to see the original cast back on screen. And... To be honest, the only reason, if they hadn't been in it, I wouldn't have seen the movie. And as it was, it was like, oh, well, I'll just watch it for them then. But two and a half hours, Jesus Christ. But thinking, well, we need to watch it for the podcast. And I was pleasantly surprised. So it could be a case of set your expectations to sub-zero and you'll be pleasantly surprised. But I did enjoy it 
as a dumb blockbuster. It wasn't just that I thought it's not shit. I thought actually this is that's the uh, that's the tagline for this pod, isn't it? Set your expectations to sub zero. That's right, and you might find it mildly diverting. Rob, why have the moon when we can have the stars? <laughs> so yes, I thought this was a good, adequately executed movie, and uh, it gave me the summer blockbuster thrills that I wanted and um yes but I don't think we should really continue this franchise but of course they will because this one I think is set to to make loads of money I mean it's first day around the world of release it's it's done 115 million so yes it'll be interesting to see how they bring the franchise back though yeah how long was it between 3 and world 14 years I think okay so we'll see it again in 2036 Yes, indeed. If, it'll be interesting to see what the world is like in 2036. We're probably... We actually brought back dinosaurs. Don't worry, guys. Oh, no, that sounds like quite good fun, Rob. I think it's much more likely that we'll be hit by an asteroid. So it's going to be something like, you know, um, Dinosaurs, that TV series from the early 90s, where you've got the anthropomorphic dinosaur family. Yeah, the one that was basically The Simpsons. Yes. And has that great joke in The Simpsons where they're watching it. And uh, Lisa says, it's like they saw our lives and put it up on screen. (laughs) Oh, actually, just one thing to go back to the Top Gun episode when we were talking about Ray Liotta. So I talked about an encounter that Scorsese had with Ray Liotta at Cannes, actually reading this very, very nice piece that Scorsese wrote about Ray Liotta in The Guardian recently. It was at the Venice Film Festival for a screening of The Last Temptation of Christ. But yes, Scorsese wrote this really, really nice piece about working with Ray Liotta and actually the reasons why they didn't work again afterwards, which was no bad blood. It was just one of those things that they just couldn't sync up schedules and the right project. But he says that's something I really, really regret now, that we just couldn't get the right thing to re-team on. But it's a lovely piece that he wrote. So yes, I strongly recommend. Actually, I'll, um, I'll put it in the show notes as well because it's a really nice piece. The fact that we didn't get, I don't know, what would have been, what would have been the best thing for them to re-team on? I would love to have seen Ray Liotta in silence. Yes, that, I mean, that's the thing is because you immediately think The Departed or something like that, but I think he would have been great in The Departed. Yeah, that would have been good. Um, um, sorry, he would have been great in Silence. Or as one of the ambulance drivers in Bringing Out the Dead, that might have been quite good as well. Or actually, no, and I think it would have been better if he'd have just been a doctor in that. Just um... Or maybe like or like, or the, or like the Tom Sizemore character, if it wasn't going to be Tom Sizemore. Well, I was thinking that, but then that's what you expect from Ray Liotta, that... Yeah, manic menace. I think it would have been better if he'd have played against type and have just been one of the kind of harassed doctors. Yeah. But yeah, but it was, I think, scheduling as much as the actual project. But anyway, it's a really, really nice piece and I will put the link in the show notes. Great. Well, I guess if that's it. But thank you very much, Mr. Daniel, for your time today. Thank you as well. It's always a pleasure. And yes, this was more fun to talk about than I thought it would be. So before I saw the film, I mean, not because I thought, oh, now... <laughs> Oh, God, now I have to talk about it. <laughs> Sunday morning, talking about a film with Wallace. Ugh, of course, that is one of the joys in my life. Oh, thank you, mate. Well, and, and you too. And if our listeners want to find you online, where can they? Well, they can find me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at filmstories.co.uk. There's a recent thing that I posted up about the thing. Um, sorry, that I wrote about the thing that was posted last week. So I would drive people to read that electric-shadows.com and lovehorror.co.uk are other places you can find my writing. If you want to hear Mr. Wallace and I talk about that classic 1986 movie Highlander, seen by Gloria Scene with equally glorious guests, then just go over to Another Time McLeod, wherever you are listening to this, where we talk about Highlander. (laughs) 
in very deep detail. <laughs> so yeah, you can listen to that wherever you listen to this. Follow it on Twitter at McLeod Time. And also you can drop us a Highlander-themed email at whowantspodforever at gmail.com. Great. Well, and yeah, if you want to follow me online, you can do so on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. If you want to follow this podcast, you can do so at Movie Robcast. And yeah, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do rate and review. It really does help drive more listeners. And we really do appreciate the feedback. We do indeed. And it helps with all those algorithms and our rankings within them. Well, once again, Rob, thank you very much. And once again, thank you. It's been rawsome. <laughs> And we're back to it. Come on, another one to sa- <laughs> let's salvage it. Um, see, all I can think of now is is that joke about what do you call a dinosaur that sat on a stinging nettle? What do you call a dinosaur that sat on a stinging nettle? A megasaurus. What do you call a dinosaur with no eyes? I think I know this one, but you say the punchline. Do you think he saw us? Yes. <laughs> There's got to be one more. No more. No more. Please, no more. Make it extinct. Uh, I can't think of any. <laughs> I think that's it. I think, yeah, let's put a meteor through this. And uh... <laughs> Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening. And we'll be with you again very soon. Don't, Don't move. move. Bigger. Why do they always have to go bigger? Bigger.